Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Gergelecta. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Change. Welcome to the Slow Food Youth Network Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to this new episode of the Sfin podcast dedicated to EU food policies where we explore and dissect for you European debates on hot topics regarding food and agriculture. Today we talk about climate. A few weeks ago world leaders met in Glasgow for the COP26. Alas, this crucial international summit on climate change ended with a disappointing agreement just when the expectations of civil society, young people, indigenous peoples and all those affected by the climate emergency were highest. The Glasgow Agreement does not even properly address the most ambitious goal of the 2015 Paris Accord, that is, to limit earth warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Delegation left Glasgow with the earth still on track to blow past the threshold towards a future of escalating weather crisis and irreversible damage to the natural world. What's more, despite causing approximately 30% of all atmospheric carbon, there was little said about food and farming. The COP26 should have paved the way for the transition towards agroecological food systems, where evidence shows that they keep carbon in the ground, support biodiversity, rebuild soil fertility and sustain yields over time, providing a basis for secure farm livelihoods and healthy diets for all. There can be no real transition towards sustainable food systems without a policy of financing agroecological systems that follow binding targets, which is completely missing from the COP26 final declaration. And where does the EU stand in all this? Well, at the beginning of the COP26, Ursula von der Leyen and Franz Timmermans, respectively President and Vice President of the EU Commission, both reiterated their commitment to set the EU on the path to climate neutrality and to do everything in their power to foster climate cooperation with other participating countries at the climate conference. But did they reach these goals? Well, now that the COP26 is behind us and that dust has settled, Let's take a step back to analyze what was actually decided in Glasgow, what was said about food and agriculture, and about the EU's way forward on climate change. And for this intense discussion, I am joined today by Shane Harlan, Executive Director of Slow Food in the UK, Chantal Clément, Deputy Director of IPS Food, which is the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, and Tim McPhee, European Commission Spokesperson for Climate Action and Energy. Welcome to the three of you, and thank you for being here with me today. But before we start, I'd like to hear a short excerpt of the COP26 closing session. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I am deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment, but I think as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. We just heard Alok Sharma, president of the COP26, offering an emotional apology about the final agreement during his closing speech. Tim, I want to launch the discussion with you. We understand how the COP26 can be seen as a victory since 190 countries came to an agreement. Yet, as we just heard, There was a lot of disappointment regarding the outcomes of the COP26 and many commentators think it was watered down and not ambitious enough. So what's your take on it? 
Well, I would agree with the people that say that it can be seen as um, as progress uh, and that we're we're definitely heading in the right direction. Uh, we're perhaps not heading there fast enough yet. Um, but I think what you can definitely take away from from COP26 is a sense of progress on on several different areas. If you look at the the headlines in terms of the the targets we're looking to achieve, um, what the COP26 did um, was really um, create a global consensus and a focus on the need to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees. Now, under the Paris Agreement, we we agreed to aim below two degrees and um, do our best to pursue 1.5. And really, um, the science and the events that we've seen around the world in the last year have made people realize that we have to aim for that higher level um, of the ambition scale. So I think that's that's really very significant. That wasn't something um, that was necessarily guaranteed before COP26 started. And the other thing is a realization that we need to move faster. Um, there were a lot of countries that made uh, new pledges, set new targets for their emissions reductions before the COP or at the, at the beginning when we had the World Leaders Summit. Um, but we're not yet on track for 1.5 degrees of warming. So we we got an agreement at the end of COP26 that countries would come back and look again at their nationally determined contributions. So that's the national uh, emissions reduction targets by COP27 next year in, in Egypt. So I think that's very important in terms of raising the level of ambition and making sure that we have a regular rendezvous where we come back and check that we're on on target. So I think in terms of the world going in the right direction, we're definitely there. Um, But as I say, the the pace needs to be picked up. Beyond that, you had some some important new language, new things which were mentioned in a COP decision. So I'm thinking about the phase down of, of coal and removing inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Now, I know that's an area of a little bit of contention um, where people say that the language was watered down at the last minute, where the language was not ambitious enough. Um, But this is language which had never been there before. Um, And I think I I would um, look at what Greenpeace said, actually, at the end of COP26, where they said that changing one word doesn't change the signal that you're sending. And the signal that we're sending is that the era of coal is is coming to an end. And I think that's that's really important in terms of how we make those emissions reductions that we need. Thank you, Tim. And what about you, Shane? You were also at the COP26. So what's your take on how it went and its outcomes? Yes, I was at COP26. It was it was really, really interesting to be there. Um, I'm an eternal optimist, Alice. I, I believe that, you know, we have the power to, to change things um, and that together that we, we can affect that change. Um, but the optimist that I am, I, I really think that this COP so critical. Um, the, the five-year review from the Paris Accord really, really did um, fall short. Um, yeah, we, we saw a lot of watering down of various different policies and, and some of those have been very much in the news around things like fossil fuels um, and, and transport. Um, and we also saw, you know, things which at first glance sound really interesting, such as, you know, the $1.4 billion for, for um, forestry and reforesting. 
But, you know, as again, as much as I'm an optimist, you know, 11 years ago, developing countries were promised $100 billion a year um, to support them um, into climate transition, into sustainable economies, and, and to mitigate the effects of climate change. And that hasn't been paid yet. So if we've not even paid the money that we promised 11 years ago, I, I, I'm not certain that, you know, that, that today's money is going to be paid, albeit a, a much lesser amount. Um, and I think the other really interesting thing um, about COP is globally farmers are women, they're young women, they're women of colour. Um, and on the main stage, in the main meetings, there were very, very few voices from, from people of colour from, from the global south. Um, the, the meeting is dominated by white middle-aged men. Um, I say that as a white middle-aged man myself. So as optimistic as I am, um, I don't think we heard a great deal. And certainly from a slow food perspective, food and farming really wasn't mentioned too much. Um, we, we can dive into that in a little bit. Yeah, let's dive, let's dive in right away. So yeah, how were food and agriculture addressed during the COP? Well, as, as I was just saying, really, it wasn't addressed very much at all. I mean, th there were some meetings around agroecology, um, nothing concrete in those, speaking about how agroecology is a good thing, um, but no targets, no financing, no, no, no commitments. There wasn't a single day dedicated to food and farming. And food and farming, of course, drives anything between you know, a quarter and a third of, of all our carbon emissions. But there wasn't a day dedicated to it. We had days dedicated to finance. We had days dedicated to transport, but nothing around food and farming. Um, and I really, really believe not only is food and farming at the moment a significant driver of climate change, that it can really be one of the um, significant solutions of climate change. Um, and we just didn't get that at all in this COP. Um, and even when we are speaking about things like reforestation um, and where that land is going to come from, who land is going to be reforested? Is it going to be indigenous peoples who are subsistence farmers who are custodians of that land? Or is it going to come from, you know, large scale ranches who are, you know, producing beef cattle? Or is it coming from, you know, people producing soya or, or corn or, or other or global commodity crops? And I think what I really, really wanted to see coming out of COP, which sadly we didn't see, was actually thinking about what is it that we're actually producing? Do we want to continue eating endlessly these very, very short number, small in number um, commodity crops, which take up huge amounts of land that are driving climate change? Or do we want to live in a biodiverse world where those, where those um, plants and trees are actually sequestering carbon? That's the kind of world that I think we should be living in. And that certainly wasn't a message that was being heard outside of fringe meetings at COP. Chantal, anything you'd like to add about the COP26 and food and agriculture's share at the negotiating table? So I think the first thing to note is that food systems were just simply absent from the formal agenda at COP26, despite growing calls for action in this area. So unsurprisingly, any of the commitments we received to improve food systems were relatively weak pledges from governments. I think at the same time, we really saw a growing amount of events that discussed food and food systems. So there was momentum at COP through side events and other more informal events, which was positive to see, because I think more and more people are just seeing this clear link between food systems and climate action. But for me, the real danger, of course, is about who's able to have the biggest voice in these debates and who's driving the discussions and the solutions that might be picked up by decision makers. The One prominent moment that we did see food systems mentioned at COP26 was through the UK presidency statement, 
on food systems, the one that was released on November 6th. So this statement was about the 45 governments led by the UK who pledged to take action to move us towards more sustainable food systems. And I think this included leveraging over 4 billion US dollars of new public sector investment into agricultural innovation and committing to food and agricultural policy reform. So, you know, it was exciting to see recognition for food systems for the first time at COP, but the content of those commitments was a bit worrying, I think, for us, because few of them really move us beyond business as usual approaches. Um, and what I mean by that is that that most of the funding that was committed is focused on industrial and productivist approaches, especially to support the development of climate resilient crops and breeds. I mean, we know that billions of dollars have already been invested in these kinds of techno fixes, but these solutions really haven't ever delivered the way we want. I think we need to make food and farming systems resilient through diversity, not just improving single crops and breeds and using these top down approaches to share these technologies around the world. I think we've proven that these types of solutions never really work because we need to be doing this much more, maybe much more difficult, but more structural work of rebuilding the foundations of our food systems so that people have better access to food, better nutrition, better livelihoods, all of this in a climate resilient system. So I think on that, what we saw was a total lack of acknowledgement of agroecology, of food sovereignty, of rights-based approaches in these commitments and in the majority of discussions on food at COP, even though these are the approaches that are fundamental to allowing us to really address issues of climate change, biodiversity loss, deforestation, and the other issues that were so pressing in the COP negotiations. So if we don't underpin our solutions with these approaches, we risk continuously dispossessing local food and farming communities of their rights, their lands, their livelihoods, when they're often the ones who are already upholding some of the most sustainable practices and developing solutions on the ground. So maybe just to, just to finish, this shows that these deep power dynamics are at play over who gets to determine solutions for the future of our food systems. And unfortunately, I think what I got from COP was much like the UN Food Systems Summit that happened only two months before, it really risks being a space that gets captured by corporate interests and the governments who back them up. So for me, it's very urgent that farmer groups, civil society, scientists, communities around the world really just work to make these spaces more participatory, more inclusive, so that the concerns come from those who are actually working in our food systems to have a say. We really want to avoid having another area for global governance where there are these two tiers of conversations happening. One where dominant voices are setting the agenda, and then another one that's really happening at the fringes but it's where the very transformative ideas are, are actually shared. Thanks, Shane and Chantal. You both gave us, I think, a, a good overview of the COP26 shortcomings, especially on food and agriculture. Um, I'm coming back to you, Tim, to discuss the EU commitments during this climate summit. For instance, on November 2nd, COP26 negotiators announced the Global Methane Pledge. Can you explain to us what it is and what it entails? Yeah, so this is a joint initiative uh, from the European Union and the United States. It was actually something which we announced, which President von der Leyen announced with President Biden back in September. And they said that heading into the COP26 in Glasgow, they would be working with countries around the world um, to get supporters for the, the Global Methane Pledge. Now, the objective of the pledge is that all the countries that have signed up Uh, will collectively reduce their methane emissions by at least 30% from 2020 levels by 2030. Um, so it's a 10-year 
reduction and 30% of methane emissions. And the reason that this is so important is that methane is it's a very powerful greenhouse gas um, which stays in the environment um, for, for a, le- a shorter time than carbon dioxide, uh, but it has a very powerful impact um, when it is uh, in the atmosphere. And we believe that it can make a significant difference in terms of reducing global warming, uh, perhaps 0.2 degrees by 2050 if we follow through on the pledge. So by the time we got to, to Glasgow, as you said, on the, the 2nd of November, over 100 countries around the world had agreed um, to join the pledge. Now, what they agreed to do is to take domestic action to meet, meet these targets. So there will be a strong focus on energy sector, uh, because that's where a lot of savings can be made most quickly, um, but also on agriculture and on, on waste. Um, for example, in, in the European Union, um, we adopted a methane strategy last year, uh, and we will be adopting legislation in the coming weeks on reducing methane emissions, methane leaks um, from the energy sector. But there is also work that has been ongoing um, to reduce um, organic waste in landfills, and we've managed to reduce by around a half since 1996 the methane emissions from, from landfills. So that's, um, yeah, that's an overview of, of what countries are committing to do with the pledge. Concretely, knowing that agriculture is the predominant source of methane emissions, how does the EU plan to reach the pledge's targets? Yeah, so there's several things that we can do in the, in the field of agriculture. And this is something which uh, member states will need to look at individually as they implement the common agricultural policy they will, when they submit their strategic plans to the Commission. Um, but there's a number of things that we, that we have in mind. So one of them is to promote the, um, the production of, of biomethane, of biogases from agricultural waste, from, from uh, residues and from the agricultural sector. Um, so that way you're also creating economic opportunity uh, for, for the farming sector, for, for farmers. Another thing that we're looking at is plans on carbon farming. So again, to, to incentivize farmers to rethink the use of their land um, and to create economic incentives for them to set aside a certain amount of land, um, which can, can store carbon um, and, and can reduce emissions. And then also we need to look at things like uh, feedstock for cattle, for, for other animals on farms, because um, changing animal diets can also reduce methane emissions. So what the commission will do is it will help countries, it will help farmers to share, um, share knowledge about new technologies, new practices, which they can implement uh, and, and contribute to this overall goal of bringing down our emissions. Thanks, Tim. Talking about new climate partnerships, IPS Food also kick-started one during the COP26 that is called the Glasgow Food Declaration. So Chantal, what is it and how are you going to make use of it in the future? I think this initiative of the Glasgow Food and Climate Declaration is one of the places where I saw some real dynamism and positivity for food systems change at COP26. Maybe to give you some background, The Glasgow Food and Climate Declaration was developed by IPES Food, Nourish Scotland, and a range of local and international partners with the aim to highlight the really pioneering efforts of cities and regions and other subnational governments in driving food system sustainability. So at COP26, 
the declaration brought together over 100 local authorities from around the world to renew their commitments to tackling climate change through integrated food policies and strategies. And what it also did was that it called on national governments to step up and to bring food systems reform to the forefront of their own commitments and their own agendas, and really just to act as ambitiously as the local level has been acting. Because we know that national governments really hold the power to shape a majority of policies, but that in fact it's really at the local and the regional level that we're seeing some of the most exciting work to transform our food systems. So the declaration served as a mechanism to recognize the work local actors are doing on the international stage, while pushing to make that that link between food and climate a bigger part of the COP26 agenda. So in terms of next steps, we're seeing this leadership from our signatories, who in the coming years will continue to develop their own food and climate strategies. I think our goal was never to make anyone take formal commitments, but to say that they stand with this more transformative and comprehensive vision for food systems change, and to make it clear that this should be the way forward at COP26 and beyond. Because as I mentioned, this becomes really important when we see conversations increasing around food systems at COP. We really want to show that there's this alternative way forward based on transparency, inclusivity, and more integrated solutions. So in the coming year, and as we move towards COP27 already, we hope to bring on more subnational and local governments on board, especially states and regions, and also indigenous and tribal governments, who are also leading some very transformative action and who really need to come together to have a unified voice at COP. Again, as I said, we have to counter the other less ambitious business-as-usual pathways that are being set in these discussions for food systems and to really just show that there's another way to do things. That sounds very promising. Shane, what about Slow Food? By this I mean, how does Slow Food help tackle climate change? So Slow Food does that everything through its core around climate change. It does it, it does it in very overt ways, such as um, our project Slow Food Climate Action, which takes peoples from all across the world um, and asks them to, to ask their elected leaders and their communities to think about what causes climate change and the kind of world that we want to live in. And there's also some personal actions related to that as well, perhaps not eating so much meat or thinking about um, where food comes from um, and local food. But even beyond that even if we go back to you know to the founding principles of slow food that of good clean and fair food even you know 30 years ago when climate change really wasn't being spoken about as much those principles are actually the very things that we need as solutions to climate change we're talking about people being paid an equitable wage that um involved in food and farming in a in a way that doesn't um, negatively impact the, the countryside and the landscape, food that's good for them and the wider community, um, not wasting food. Um, and if we then think about some of our kind of our flagship programs, things like the Ark of Taste, well, the Ark of Taste um, is an incredible program because it speaks about food culture and food heritage. And those things are really, really important from a cultural aspect and also from a taste aspect. But they're also an insurance policy against climate change, because as we get disease, as we get um, climate change, which is affecting the way that plants can grow, then maybe something that is in the arc of taste, which would have otherwise have died out, maybe that can sustain that disease, or maybe that can sustain those warmer temperatures or the or the flooding, which we know is going to be coming. We simply don't know. So the arc of taste, I think, is very much there. I think our projects around things like food waste 
and the disco soups, which Sven champion, again, very much kind of key into the, the work around climate change. Because the, I think one of the things around climate change is that there isn't one single solution. There are multiple solutions, and they all interlock and interplay. And it's about actually doing all or most of those. Um, and I guess some of that depends on where it is in the world that we live. Um, but, you know, using that kind of basket of tools um, that slow food has um, and those messages to actually make a much more sustainable world. So IPS food, as well as slow food, defend agroecology as a way to help tackle climate change. Can you explain to us what agroecology is and what impact it has on the environment and the climate? Sure. I think most simply put, the way that people are describing agroecology is that it's a way of farming with nature, not against it. And I think this is very clear because it's an approach to sustainable farming and food system that relies in particular on diversity, um, diversity of plants and animals, diversity of knowledge, um, just diversity of solutions to create resilience. So rather than relying so heavily on external chemical inputs by trying to you know, dominate nature by completely controlling the landscapes and replicating this same model around the world, agroecology really works with the existing local ecosystem to produce our food. Of course, the benefits of doing so from a climate perspective is that it improves soil and plant quality, it improves biodiversity, and ultimately it yields a diversity of foods that allow for more varied and balanced nutrition and also food security for local communities. And of course, beyond agricultural production practices, the aim of agroecology is also to put farming communities and food workers at the heart of the system by seeking to ensure that they have fair and equitable livelihoods by working within shorter and more transparent supply chains, and that we're really building food systems on their knowledge and the experience that's actually happening on the ground. So agroecology, I think, helps to tackle climate change by improving the whole ecosystem. Because to avoid climate-related risks, we have to be resilient in terms of our systems that are based on healthy soils, healthy water, and just very biodiverse ecosystems. Maybe concretely, by relying on things like crop rotation, intercropping, agroforestry techniques, uh, green manure and composting. Agroecology really helps to keep soil healthy and soil is so crucial to our systems. You know, we know that healthy soil helps to capture carbon into the ground. We also know that healthy soils minimize the effects of extreme weather events like droughts and floods. Um, we have so many studies now available by the FAO, by IFAD, by others that really demonstrate that we have really reduced vulnerability to climate variability on farms with much higher levels of biodiversity and diversified cropping systems. I think in contrast, we know that industrial agriculture degrades the environment and by relying on only a very few number of crops and breeds, it makes food systems very vulnerable to disease outbreaks, to pest outbreaks, to climate risks. Um, so in contrast, again, biodiversity allows for the mitigation of that risk. I was thinking that it, it literally responds to the expression that you shouldn't put all of your eggs in one basket if you want to manage and be more resilient. You, you just have to be more diverse in, in your production practices. Um, in terms of climate, I think agroecology is also more efficient because it depends less on external inputs, as I said, that require really a lot of fossil fuels to be produced. So this also has a positive health effect for farmers, food workers, consumers, because they just aren't being exposed to those chemicals as they would be in conventional systems. So it's not just resilient in terms of climate, it's also resilient in terms of people. 
And maybe lastly, I think agroecology mitigates climate risks in a, in a health-related way because it allows communities to be more self-sufficient and, as I mentioned, more nutritionally secure. Because we've seen farming communities around the world go from suffering during what they call the lean seasons, these are whole months with little to no access to food between harvests, harvests to be able to rely on these diverse systems that allow them to have food all year round. And I think in a number of IPES food reports, including our 2016 report comparing industrialized systems to agroecological systems, and then in our 2018 case studies report on examples of agroecological transformation, we clearly showed that the evidence is out there to demonstrate these benefits. So of course, I invite everyone to look at these resources and many, many others because the evidence is there that agroecology is climate resilient and can get us to somewhere more sustainable. From an EU perspective, setting a target only has real meaning if you back that up with concrete policies that will get you to that target. So that is why first we set into law in the EU climate neutrality by 2050, a reduction of at least 55% by 2030, and then we put forward a package of measures um, that would get us there. And I believe this is what I hope I can convince other major emitters to do is not just to declare a, a, a date for uh, carbon neutrality or climate neutrality, but then also come up with the policies that we have to undertake now. And if we don't take these steps now, if we don't make a success of this COP, it's difficult to see how we can reduce with half the emissions uh, in less than 10 years' time. It needs to happen right now. This was Franz Timmermans, Vice President of the EU Commission, at a press conference during the COP26. Tim, we hear him talk about concrete policies to get the EU to climate neutrality by 2050. Now that the COP is over, what is the concrete way forward on climate change for the EU now? And what will the EU's role be in the implementation of the Glasgow Agreement? So I would say there's, there's two things. So one is the domestic work that we need to do, and that is implementing the 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 package of legislative proposals which we presented in this summer, uh, which are known a little bit in, in Brussels circles as the Fit for 55 package, because they're making sure our legislation is fit to get us to our target of reducing emissions by at least 55% by 2030. So the Commission put legislative proposals on the table. Those are now being examined by the European Parliament and by the member states in the Council. And what we would like to see happen is that that legislative process uh, intensifies and that before the next COP, so before the end of next year, Europe has the legislative framework that it needs um, to deliver on its own targets for 2030. So that's the domestic angle. And then internationally, what we will keep doing um, is the climate diplomacy, um, which is also a, a hallmark of the European Green Deal. And that's about talking to our partners around the world about their own green transitions, encouraging them to be more ambitious and supporting them, um, sharing, uh, sharing the examples which, which Europe has, whether that's technology, policy, uh, legislation, um, to show other people the, the success that we've had. Um, so Europe has reduced its emissions by around 30% in the last, uh, well, since 1990, uh, while growing our economy. And I think it's important that other countries see that the, 
the green transition is not something which creates economic hardship, but it's actually something which creates economic opportunity. And also to remind people that the cost of not taking action is actually even greater in, in the long term. So yeah, we have work to do at home and we have work to do with all of our international partners to get us on track for that 1.5 degree climate change target that we've all, uh, we've all consented to in Glasgow. And we'll close the podcast on this note. Thank you very much to the three of you for being here with me today. To those who are listening to us right now, do not hesitate to share this podcast with your network and subscribe to this Finn podcast channel on which the Slow Food Europe podcast is hosted. You can find Slow Food and IPS Food on Twitter to stay up to speed about EU food and agriculture, as well as Mr. Tim McPhee about EU action for the climate and the environment. Have a great day.